0: So last week we began to talk about beauty from ashes, and we looked at uh, theme versus series of Psalm 126. It says, those who sow with tears will reap a harvest of joy. Uh, and the picture, of course, is, is that you'll go through difficult times in your life, uh, and as you lean into those times and, and go through it with the proper perspective and framework that includes what God is doing, the the, the result of that can be a harvest of joy, that something good can come out of that pain, that there can be beauty from ashes. Every society has some framework with which we view pain and suffering and loss. Uh, Throughout the world, uh, through all times, uh, sociologists have studied it through, and they've seen how is it that people uh, give reason for the pain that you're going through Uh, explain what your then response to that pain ought to be, and then what your intended uh, hope to get out of that would be. So in other words, uh, as you look at different societies and cultures around the world, uh, those who have a moralistic framework, they would say the reason for your pain or your suffering is what? What's what's a moralistic reason for your pain-suffering problems? You did something wrong. And because you did something wrong, that's why bad stuff happened to you. When Job's friends gather around him, they come from a very moralistic framework, and they say, what'd you do? Come on, man. Bad stuff like this doesn't happen to good people, so you must have done something to deserve it. And in a moralistic framework, if you believe it, you know if you come from that worldview, then the response to pain, suffering, wrongdoing is to figure out what you did wrong and correct it. To do better, to do right, so that this won't happen to you again. So if I'm a better person, these kind of things won't happen. And of course, your goal is to live in some sense of a utopian society where everybody is doing good, everybody is doing right, and everybody is seeking what is just. And if we all do that, we all do our part, then we can live in a better world. Other worldviews or frameworks you, you are heavily influenced by Eastern thought or, or Buddhist thought. Uh, and in that mindset, that all of pain is just simply an illusion. Uh, that, that you uh, have lost sight of the, of the reality that you are just sort of a, a spirit moving through existence and that when you encounter pain, it's, it's nothing more than illusion. And you're thinking, well, that illusion hurts really bad. But I say, no, it's just illusionary, and, and that your response to the illusionary of pain is detachment. And so if you can just detach from your... All the things that you're attached to, whether it be relationships or people or things, the reason why losing your house hurt is because you were so attached to your house. And if you weren't so attached to your house, it wouldn't hurt anymore. So if you could just be more detached, the reason why you hurt from that relational breakup is because you got too attached. And if you weren't so attached and you could just be detached from that, you'd be better. And and of course, the, the end goal of this is to reach enlightenment, where you can see the world and yourself in a different way and sort of reach that higher plane of existence and living in enlightenment. Others come from life as more of a fatalistic point of view, and that is that stuff happens because it's destined to happen. And for some of you, you just you even say this comes out in some of your own thinking, well, I'm just a glutton for punishment. It seems like as if it's just always raining on me. Um, Murphy's Law is, you know, Murphy travels with us on every trip. That's just sort of what happens, just kind of my destiny in life, is just to have pain and suffering. And so sort of the, uh, the, so the reason for it is just simply that it is, uh, it is just kind of my, my lot in life. But my response to it is to endure it. Uh, why? Because my hope is that once I've endured it, I'll sort of have that heroic story of, of overcoming. And we love to hire speakers to come in who have a story of what they've endured. It was their lot in life and they faced it and sort of they were destined for that so they could be an example to all of us of having overcome it through the fire and through the pain. And there's this great triumphant story of this heroic lifestyle that's come through that. Others, it's a dualistic idea. And for some cultures, it's purely dualistic. Everything is a major struggle of good versus evil. And so that's the reason why this is happening is because it's a part of the cosmic battle of good versus evil. My response to that, of course, is to be on the side of good so I can look forward to and celebrate the time when good triumphs over evil. Now, I know each of these have been Christianized in some way, shape, or form. And there's elements. And I always say, every worldview has a reflection of truth or an element of truth. And and if they didn't have some element of truth, nobody would believe them, right? Sort of the best lie is one that's partial truth. So each of these has a partial truth to them. Sociologists, though, as they look at these different worldviews and they say, okay, what's the American view of pain and suffering? They say, well, Americans are the least e- equipped to face pain and suffering because of their naturalistic worldview. Uh, in other words, from the time we're young, we're taught a naturalistic worldview. What is that? Uh, that is that we came here by natural means, that the scientific process ended up with us here, that it was purely accidental that life even formed, that earth ended up where it was and could sustain life, it is purely accidental that life began, and then it was just through an unguided evolutionary process that you ended up here. Well, the psychological outworking of that is, is what then is the cause for pain and suffering and loss? It's summarized well by Richard Dawkins. If you don't know Richard Dawkins, he... He's an atheist that's very interesting to read because a lot of people, they'll come from a naturalistic worldview, but as soon as that worldview is not convenient or the obvious issues come up with the fact that it can't answer all their questions, they'll quickly switch out of it to some other worldview, and then they'll quickly switch back into it when it's convenient once again. Uh, The classic one of this is, we're here by evolution, they go to a funeral, they have a sense that there's something out there beyond beyond life and death, they all of a sudden suddenly come into some idea of spirituality, and as soon as that's over, they go right back to the naturalistic worldview. What I love about Dawkins is that he actually just follows the absurdity all the way through, and he has no problem just stating the most absurd views with pure, bold confidence. And you kind of look at it and you go, really? And he's like, it must be. Well, okay. I'm glad you're at least honest enough to stick with it. So here's what he says about uh, the reality of pain and suffering in a naturalistic worldview that he has. He says, in a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, that's naturalistic worldview evolution. He says, in a world of blind physical forces and naturalistic or and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, and some people are going to get lucky, and you won't find, many, find any rhyme or reason for it or any justice. In other words, it's all chance misfortune. Mother Nature has no feelings. Mother Nature has, has a mind of her own, and it is a mindless, uh, thoughtless, careless event. In other words, you, know, you look at the American frontier. Four people build houses, and one of them got struck by lightning. It just happens. There's no rhyme or reason to it. It just happens, and so if, if things just happen by random chance, uh, how do you respond to it? Uh, you just just, it just is what it is. And by the way, this is right here is what so shapes our culture. We see things that reflect this, and we just accept it. Like yeah, the Princess Bride quote. What did he say? Life is pain. Deal with it. Right. Suck it up, Buttercup. I don't know if that's where it came from, but it fits, right? Life is pain, and, and, and anybody tells you any different is just selling you something. You know, we listen to that, and there's pieces like, yeah, that's true. There, there's something with it that connects with our mindset and our understanding. Um, Alfred Lloyd Tennyson wrote a, a poem about the Light Brigade, uh, and he says, you may not know anything about that, but you at least know his, his, his uh, one line from this poem. Theirs is not to reason why, but to do or die, right? There's no reason you know, you're going to go up there and fight to your death? Why? Why don't ask those questions. Death happens. Some people get shot. Some people don't. It just happens. It's just the way that it is. Accept it. We use this in advertising slogans. Nike, just do it. Why? Just do it. Isn't that what you say, say as parents? Why? Why do we got to go? Why do I got to put on me? Just do it. Will you just do it? Just do it. Right? Why does pain or suffering happen? It just does. Okay? It just does it just does. And, and, and even if we're searching for some other explanation, there's a piece of us which deep within our soul is kind of circling back and has some sense that that's actually what, what's going on here. That's what I just have to accept. I just have to white-knuckle and accept. It just happens. So if there's no rhyme or reason as to why it happens, what's the result? Well, the result is a couple of problems. and This is where Americans have really a hard time dealing with pain and suffering. One of the biggest problems is we are like reason machines. Like we, we seek out, we have beacons in our body, in our mind. Humanity does. We have to know why, right? We can't just do something and not know why. And so when somebody says there is no reason, we're like, yeah, 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 yeah. I get that, but what's the reason, <laughs> right? As you look back over, okay, for, for those, think of, think of something that happened in your life years ago that was a, a source of pain or suffering or loss, for some of you, the reason why there's still some pain that lingers is because this one question is still unanswered. Why? Why did it happen? It's not enough just to say, well, because when somebody drinks and drives, that kind of thing can happen. That doesn't tell me why it happened to me. That doesn't tell me why it was my mother. That doesn't tell me why it was my friend. I mean, that, that's an explanation for, for sort of how it happened, but it doesn't tell me the, the bigger why reason. You know, for the moralistic, they would say that there may be something you did wrong. Uh, for the Eastern philosophy, we well, need to detach from that. You shouldn't have been so attached to the first one. They give some explanation of why. So what is my why? Well, the naturalistic worldview, Dawkins is right. There is no why. It was just random chance. It just happened. You got unlucky. And there's something within us that doesn't accept that. The second problem that we have is when you look to what Americans would say is our reason for living, suffering, pain, and loss is a direct conflict with our reason for existing. We are all about happiness. The, the meaning of life is wrapped up in the pursuit of happiness and comfort, uh, and we just want to move on to the next good experience. And so what is and how do, you, how do you deal with pain and loss in the context that this life is all about pursuing comfort and happiness? Well, it messes all that up, doesn't it, right? So we, we start the American Frontier, we all build our house, and when this guy's house burnt down or got hit by lightning, it messed up his whole plan for life. We are pursuing a new life, we're pursuing happiness. So, so what do we do? Well, we avoid. The only thing you can do is try to avoid. So, so th- when there is no cause, the only re- response is to avoid it. Sort of like I, I like when, in the movie Glory, when the sergeant is trying to, cha- tra- to train the regiment and one of the soldiers does something and so the sergeant hits him and he looks to the soldiers and says, why did he get hit? And what's Denzel Washington say? You forgot to duck right? If he just ducked, he'd avoided it. And when something bad happens, we sort of have that mentality. Well, the reason why that happened is because you built the house in the wrong place, right? You should avoid putting your house in a situation where that could happen. So you need to avoid it. If you look at modern counseling in the secular field, it all boils down to counseling techniques for how to avoid it. Your marriage is bad. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people go to a counselor. Now, by the way, counseling is great, and I'm not knocking counseling. Just go to a Christian counselor. Go to a counselor who has a worldview that's something other than a naturalistic worldview. Because in a naturalistic worldview, outside of a biblical understanding of life, they're going to counsel you to avoid pain. Your marriage is bad? Ditch him. Walk away from her. Find a new marriage. Uh, your your job's bad? Find a new job. Go somewhere else. Avoid it. Got a problem with your kids? Avoid it. Let your spouse deal with it. That's that's that's. He should be the dad. He should be doing that. Well. Hey, she's a housewife. That's what she's supposed to be doing. Let her do it. This stuff happens, people. It does. And some of you have heard these kind of of counseling. Uh, Another way to avoid it is to medicate it. Avoid the pain of it. Avoid the feeling of it. And we medicate things all. And there is some good medication for proper purposes. And there are uh, contexts where medication is right and good. And you need to be on medication. There are chemical imbalances that happen. But there's other people. They abuse the medicine. Right? They're abusing painkillers in that way. Uh, And then, of course, there's always the classic drugs and alcohol. What these things do, what the medication does, it offer, offers you a temporary numbness, a temporary avoidance of dealing with the issue. And, and it goes beyond just substances. We use relationships and people and porn and spending money and traveling. We do all kinds of things in the short term just to help us avoid facing or dealing with the problem. For some people, it's just sleeping. Just going to sleep through it, and hopefully it won't wake up. It, it, it's just all gone, and you just ignore it. Uh, other ways that we avoid it is, is we, 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 we want to run through it really quick, just just pass through. This was my issue. When, I, when my wife passed away, I remember going to people and asking, like, I, the pain was so difficult to deal with, I just wanted it to be done, right? I wanted to find a way to avoid what I was dealing with. So I asked the question, how long does this last? And the answer I got was, from books and from, from people in experience, was between four months to two years at best. Four mo- that, that's the like minimum time, four months to two years. You know, my first question was, how do I get on the four-month plan? right? And here's the thing. I did a four-year college degree in just over three. I did a three-year master's degree in just over two. How can I take this four-month minimum and move that down to about a month and a half, six, seven weeks? How can I can, can I, can I shave that down some? What can I do just to run through this really quick? Just give me the highlights, just give me the, just give me the essence of it, tell me the things I need to learn, if there's a book I can learn it from, if there's an interview I can do, I will do whatever I can to accelerate this process and just get through it. Why? Because I didn't want to go through the pain. I didn't want to go through the darkness. I just wanted to get out of the pit. Just, just give me a ladder, give me an express lane, some way to, to move through it. Other people, they just deny they're even struggling with anything. Uh, it's, it's, well, everything's fine, everything's all good, you know, when. It's just, you know, there's, there's something, you know, it's, it's not a big deal. It's, 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 I, I didn't care about it anyway. Uh, others, they'll try to spiritualize it. Spiritualize it where you give all these Christian cliches. Well, you know, God is good all the time. You know, I'm just uh, in footprints in the sand, you know, when God closes the door. Um, you know, he's just he's teaching me a lesson. I'm just, you know, taking it day by day. You know, just doing every, What What is that? That's basically a way for you to shut up all your Christian friends around you, right? To, to sort of like make everybody think that you're handling with great dignity and, and, and grace that you know, you're right, everything's all good, just, just go away, I'm doing okay, just, just, just not, I don't want to talk about it anymore. And really, inside, you feel so alone and so abandoned and so betrayed by God, you just try to put on a happy face on the outside. It's all a part of this avoiding that we do when it comes to pain and suffering, because as Americans, we're not equipped to handle pain and suffering because we're immersed in a worldview that says life is pain, just deal with it. Don't reason why, just do or die, just just suck it up, buttercup. That's, that's where we come out of. Now, The biblical worldview is is completely different. Biblical worldview comes in and says there is a reason. There is a a, a reason for the pain and loss and the suffering that you're going to go through. Um, And what God wants you to do is be able to walk through the pain and the suffering and the loss knowing three things. Now this is sort of a summary of scriptures. By the way, I was very comforted in studying for this series. I could literally teach on this topic for an entire year. There's enough material in the scriptures about pain, suffering, and loss that I could teach on this from a different story every single week of the year. Which I found very comforting in the fact that God meets us in our pain. And there's so much material out there where God says, this is not something that you deal with over here and then you come back to me. No, it's it's a part of the human experience and I want you to be able to walk through it and have the tools to be able to walk through it. And what you'll see is three things come to the surface when it comes to dealing with pain and suffering and loss. Uh, One of them is this phrase you'll see all throughout the scriptures. God says, I am with you. When you walk through the fires, I am with you. When you walk through the rivers, I am with you. I am with you, I am with you, I am with you. No matter what happens, I am with you. Now, God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Last week I mentioned how Easter is the right context to talk about pain, suffering, and loss. Because there was this moment on the cross right before Jesus dies where he looks up to the heavens and he says, what? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me. Now, every one of us, when you go through a difficulty and pain and suffering, you're going to feel like God has forsaken you. What the message of Easter and the cross is, the only one who was ever truly abandoned by God, who God was not with in the midst of his pain and suffering, is Jesus Christ. And he took on that for you and for me, so we wouldn't have to. He took on all of our sin and all of our, all of the burden of the separation from God so that we never ever would have to be separated from him ever. And so the only one who ever truly was separated from God was Jesus. Whereas when you go through these times and you feel abandoned by God, you feel abandoned, but you're not. Which is why God says a hundred times, a thousand times over in scriptures, I am with you, I am with you, I am with you. The second truth you'll see come uh, up out of scripture is you have to have a different perspective on life because this life is not all that there is. Now a while back I, I did a message on eternity and having an eternal perspective, and after it I said we got to leave the rope in here because this is just going to come up all the time. Uh, and I talked about how sort of like this rope represents your entire life, uh, all of this right here. H- however, the, the part that we often frame all of our existence and all of our pain shuffling and, and, and trials through is this little piece right here. Uh, it's kind of in three segments. The, the green part sort of like when you're growing up, the growth period of your life, when you're in school, your body's developing, you're growing up, etc. Uh, then you move out of the growth period into this kind of long period represented by the blue part, uh, and that's where... Maybe you get a job, a career, life, kind of whatever you want to pursue in life. You kind of do that in this piece, and you try to find some meaning, purpose in here. And there's going to be trials and setbacks that are going to set you back, and you're going to think, you know, I'm trying to get towards my goal here, and this is setting me back in the midst of all this. And then this red part, I, I should have used gold for this. I didn't have any gold tape. Um, this is kind of the golden years. That's like your retirement. Like you, you, you learn all this, so you can work all this, so you can then enjoy this little piece right here as often we tell people. Uh, And if if the stock market crashes right here at the really wrong time, it's going to really mess up this piece right here. If a recession happens right before your golden years, it can really mess up all your investments. So you need to prepare for that and, and find a way to avoid that happening to you. So it's all about avoidance. When you look at life all through this prism as though this is life is all there is, it's really hard to make sense of pain, suffering, and loss. Because if this is all there is, you can lose everything. However, Scripture continually points to and says, this life is not all there is. We're created to live in a loving relationship with God that doesn't just last for this little piece, isn't just about making this piece right here the best it possibly can be. We're in a loving relationship with God that will last for all eternity. And there are wrongs that will not be made right this side of heaven. There are explanations that cannot be given this side of heaven. There are understandings for the reason for your suffering and your loss and your pain that you can't understand this side of heaven. And if you expect that God is going to make everything make sense in this little piece right here, you're going to be having a really difficult time with your pain and your loss because it won't make sense. And so outside of that understanding, it's not going to make any sense. So scripture continually points us to the reality that there is something beyond this life. That's our message last week was about how their hope was in a better resurrection. Their hope wasn't in having God's blessings all happen and everything, all the wrongs being made right in this lifetime. Their hope was in the resurrection, the eternal life that they would share. Last truth you see that come, come up out of Scripture is God is working all things out for the good. Uh, this is clearly stated in Romans eight twenty eight 28, very, very well-known verse, that God works all things out for the good. Now, what you have to understand about that statement is there's two levels to this. We often say, well, everything happens for a reason. I believe that. God works out things out for a reason. Um, the thing about it is, is sometimes you it's possible to know the reason and sometimes it's not, okay? And sometimes the reason has, may have nothing to do with you at all. Like in other words, sometimes God's moving these large chess pieces which have to do with where he is moving and shaping humanity. Sometimes it has to do with sort of the cosmic spiritual battle that is going on beyond this realm that you can't even see. And I don't know what the best term for it is. And is the pain, loss, suffering you're dealing with is, I don't know how to say it, but it's like collateral damage from that, if you will. You're sort of a, what you're going through is sort of a byproduct of the fact that God had to do this. Uh, you see this in the life of, of Joseph. Now what happens is you read through the book of Genesis as God says to Abraham, one day I'm going to give you this whole land, but I can't give it to you now because to give it to you now would not be fair to the people who are living in here. Eventually one day their sin's going to get to the point where I'm going to judge them for their sin. I'll have it finally had it up to here. It's going to take about 400 years. But you and your descendants are going to grow into a great nation in that time, and I can't have you do that here. You've got to do that somewhere else. And, and after when it's the right time for them to, to be judged for their sin, then I'll come in and I'll give it to you. So you see this problem God has in the life of Abraham. I've got to get you and your descendants out of Israel and somewhere else for a season. Well, how does that happen? Well, Joseph, which is great-grandson of Moses, or grandson of Moses, um, what happens is, is he uh, is betrayed by his brothers. He is sold, or He is given off to Egyptian slave traders, ends up in Egypt, Uh, There he is betrayed by the house that he's working in, and he finds himself in the midst of this 14-year experience of trials and suffering and pain, where he is forgotten about and alone and in prison. And what God is doing in the midst of all that, what what happens in the midst of it, God works a few things of of circumstance so that he ultimately ends up becoming the prime minister of Egypt. And then when there's a famine that's out the land, what happens? All of his relatives who need food go to Egypt begging for food, and who do you think they find when they get to Egypt? Joseph. And that's the amazing story you'll see. It opens the way for them to move to Egypt completely, and that's where they stay until Moses brings them out of the promised land some 400 years later. Now, God's working all of that, and that's the cosmic thing God has to get done. But what happens along the way? Joseph spends 14 years in prison because of what God is trying to do and move. Now, he gets to see it in the end, and he looks back at his brother and says, what you guys meant for evil, this is Genesis chapter 50 verse 20, he says, what you guys meant for, for, for evil, God intended for good, to accomplish what is now being done in the saving of many lives. That was the big cosmic picture God had planned here. But what you also see in the midst of Joseph's life is it changes him into the kind of person God needs him to be for the task at hand. When he is young, he is arrogant and cocky, and God can't really trust him with information because whenever he gives him any uh, opportunity or privilege, he just shoves it in everybody else's face and he's just, He's just not fun to be around, right? Later on, though, after going through all that adversity, he has the maturity and the wisdom to handle the responsibility God gives him. And all that happens as a result of the pain and the suffering and loss because it's life's best teacher, is it not? So we can see the cosmic force at work, and Joseph sees it in the end. He says, this is why God brought me here in the first place, and I can see God that, doing that now. Now, but there are other times, like in the life of Job, you and I are told the why. Job's never told why, ever. And the reason there is that Satan comes in, he says, you know, God, this whole, this whole idea you have about having a loving relationship with humanity that will last for all eternity, it's not possible, man. This is all a con. Nobody really loves you. They just love the stuff you give them. And God's like, nuh-uh. Look at Job, man. Perfect example. Yeah, you've given Job everything. You've bought him off. Take everything away from him. He ain't going to love you anymore. And God says, yeah, he will. And what do you see happen? Job loses everything and he says, you know, naked I came into this world and naked I'll depart, but I'll continue to praise the name of the Lord. And then he loses more of his stuff. He loses his health and he looks to his wife and he says, what? Am I just gonna accept the good from God and not the bad? I'm never gonna turn my back on God. I'm frustrated, I'm angry, I don't make sense of this. But he never walks away from God through the whole process. And so Job never knows why he's he's struggling with this. Now, the reason why is amazing. But this side of eternity, he's never told. He just has to trust and endure throughout the process. Now, we see it and it's amazing. But what happens in Job's life as well is he grows to a newer and deeper understanding and relationship with his relationship with God. And so that's kind of what I want to talk about this morning, just in this very first kind of introductory message, is you may never know the reason this side of eternity as to the greater scheme of why. Why that person died why you lost that job, why that relationship fell apart. You may not know that bigger cosmic picture. You may never find that out this side of eternity. But what you can know is God is still at work in your circumstances to move you and to mold you into the person that he wants you to be every single time, regardless of whatever the bigger consequence is, regardless of whatever the big reason is. You may never even know that. You may be like Job and never know why that was all happening, but it still has the opportunity to, to move you and make you more like Jesus Christ. Now, see that in a couple passages. When, when Job's going through his trials, he says this, Job 23.10, he says, God knows the way that I'm taking. He, know, he knows this is happening to me. So God is with me. He, he is firmly understands that God is with me. Uh, he also understands that God is in control and that he's doing something throughout the midst of this. And he says, and you know, when he's tested me, I shall come forth as gold. I want to be able to suffer well. I want to get everything out of this experience that God has intended for me personally. Whatever his big cosmic reason for it is, I don't know, but I want to use this to become more like him and grow my relationship with him, that I can come out like gold. That's the same picture that Peter uses over in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. He says, In all of this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you've had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. And these trials have come so it might prove the genuineness of your faith as of greater worth than gold which, as you know, will perish even though it's refined by fire. It's this picture of the refining process of gold that burns off all of the impurities. And Job says, when I get through this thing and, it, and all the impurities in my life are burned off, I, I know what's going to remain is, is, the, is the golden, pure relationship that I have with God. So Peter's talking about this. He says, He says, though you haven't seen him, you love him. And although you don't see him now, you still believe in him. That was the question of Job. Will you still trust in God even though you can't see him? Will you still have a loving relationship with him that you'll last for all eternity? And so he goes on and he says, uh, you believe and are filled with the inexpressible and glorious joy, for you're receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. In other words, what he's saying is, when you get to this point where you've walked through the fire with God, you know beyond the shadow of a doubt, you have a real relationship. I, I remember doing a 50th wedding anniversary for a couple, and I remember looking at them and saying, you know, I just did a wedding, and I have no idea if those people really love each other but doing this like rededication service at at 50 years, you guys do, right? You'll be able to look back over the life of all the trials you've been through and know without a shadow of a doubt, you have a right relationship with each other. And when you've walked through all those paths and all the valleys with God, you'll be able to look back and say, I know, I know I'm in it for the right reason. I know I have a true relationship with him. It's kind of funny. I used to say this about about Prince Harry long before he ever got married. You can go back, you'll hear it somewhere in my old preaching. Um, I said, I don't know if Prince Harry will ever know true love, right? Because if you marry Prince Harry, what happens? You get a royal title, instant fame, political influence, wealth. All this stuff comes with just getting married to him. How would you ever know if somebody really loves you? And I said back then, it's just kind of funny the way this is all playing out. Maybe this is part of his plan. I said, the only way you would ever really know is if he was no longer prince, had no more money, and lived in an apartment eating peanut butter and jelly. I don't know if this is what's going on. Maybe he's working the system, but I'll tell you this if they end up broke and she stays, it's true love. If she bails in the process, it wasn't. But what I'm getting at is without adversity, how are you ever really going to know? How are you ever really going to know? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5 says a very similar thing. It says, Have you completely forgotten? Now, uh, this word of encouragement that addresses you uh, as a father addresses a son. Remember over in the scriptures it says this, and he starts quoting from the Old Testament, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he chastises everybody he accepts as a son. It is for discipline that you endure because God's treating his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? Don't answer that. Uh, if you are not disciplined, and everybody undergoes discipline, then you're not legitimate. You're not true sons or daughters at all. Like when my, friend's kid, or when, my, when my kids' friends come over to the house, I don't discipline them like I do my own kids, right? Because they're not my kids. When I'm at your house, I don't, I give you the first opportunity like six times to discipline them, but then I'm going to step in. I'm just going to say that. Are you with me on this, right? Yes. Your kid acting a fool, I can only go so far. Moving on. He says, how much more should we submit to our Father in heaven? Earthly fathers, they discipline us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good in order that we might share in his holiness. Because no discipline seems pleasant at the time. It's painful. But later on, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. So Peter and in, in Hebrews both point to this idea. One says that the trials will... will result in the genuineness of your faith being evident. The other one talks about a harvest of righteousness that comes out of it. In other words, it's the process that makes you more into and becoming more like Jesus Christ. The process of trials and pain and suffering have the opportunity to make you more like Jesus Christ, to produce a harvest of righteousness in your life. So whatever the cosmic picture is that God is doing, that you may never know why, and if you're always chasing the big reason why, you may never know that, you know, you may find out someday it was so that God could move your people uh, from Israel to Egypt and you see how God's at work, but it may be like Job where there's some cosmic issue going on between him and Satan or something else. I don't really know, but I'm just sort of like a piece of all this. I'm just sort of a pawn in the midst of this big greeter scheme and I never know that this side of eternity. But what can I know in both of those situations? God's at work in my life to produce a harvest of righteousness so that my relationship might be revealed for what it truly is. And there's six things I, I see that come out uh, in this area. And I don't have time to give all the scriptural references for it. I'm just kind of going to go through them with the little time that we have. Number one is, is suffering transforms uh, our view of ourselves. It transforms how we view ourselves. Like, there's a piece of you where, where you'll begin to feel like you're, you're, you're 10 feet tall and bulletproof, right? Like where, where you can withstand anything. That with, with the right training, with the right skills, and with the right effort, uh, with the right morals, you can control your outcomes, Right? Life has a way of shooting that down pretty quick, doesn't it? At some point, it gets revealed just how helpless and, and, and in need of God you truly are. And God gives pictures to this again and again and again. Uh, with Job, he says, listen, I know that you can go to SeaWorld and watch dolphins that are trained. Be careful with those killer whales, though. You see that picture in Job. I know you can trade dogs, but be careful when it comes to a crocodile or a hippopotamus. I said this years ago when I was teaching through Job. Remember when Steve Irwin passed away? The entire world had two, two thoughts. Now, now, Steve Irwin thought he could tame a crocodile. That's why when he took his little daughter, Bendy, when she was, you know, like, what, two, three years old and put her on the back of the crocodile, people freaked out and said, dude, that's still a wild animal. I think Steve had lost sight of that. I honestly, do th- I honestly think he lost sight of that. And everybody in the world was trying to remind him of that. And that's why when he passed away, everybody had two thoughts. One was, hmm, Right? Like, who didn't hate seeing Steve Irwin die? I mean, who hasn't done a Steve Irwin impression, right? Who hasn't spent hours of their life watching him, I mean, just face, you know, face off with these dangerous animals, right? And you just loved the guy. You, you couldn't not love him. But we also had another fought the exact same time. <laughs> you knew it was going to happen at some point, right? I mean, you thought it was probably going to be a deadly snake. You probably thought it was going to be eaten by a crocodile, what happened? He, he was on the back, he was like riding on the back of a stingray in the water. And, and it came up and barbed him right in the, in the, in the stomach. Why? Because not even Steve Irwin can tame the world's animals. And God says to Job, I made animals and I put them there as a clue for you that there are some things that are beyond your control. And, and you can't, you can't avoid every possible, you can't avoid everything that happens. You, you know, four people build a house, this guy's house gets hit by lightning. And what do we try to do? We try to avoid We we think we can control the situation by building in a better place, building it up higher, uh, reinforcing a little bit stronger. There's some things that are beyond your control. And tragedy and suffering and loss have a way to remind you there are some things that are just beyond your control. You feel helpless. Why? Because in reality, you really are. Another thing that trials and suffering and loss and pain does for us is it helps us examine and see the weaknesses in our character. Ever gone through something and it you realize just how selfish you had been or how irritable you are, how impatient you are, um, how argumentative you are, how stubborn you are, how abrasive you can be or controlling you can be. But that doesn't happen through, through, through the good times. That, that happens when you go through a difficult time. You look back and you realize uh, that there's some issues there's some character flaws that need to get worked out. And it has a way of sort of cutting through this, this picture that we have of ourselves that we're, that we're doing pretty much okay. And it really reveals us for who we are. It also reveals our priorities. I've said a couple times in the past that, ask this question what does God have to remove from your life so that you'll make him number one again? And he will stop at nothing. He will take a person out of your life. He will take your stuff out of your life. He will take a job out of your life. He will stop at nothing so that you'll put him back number one. Because we have a tendency to, to love things and use God and use people to get the stuff that we love. Well you see the order in scripture is to love God and love people and use things. We flip that all around, we get our priorities all mixed up in the way, but you'll see that your your priorities get clarified. That you shall have no other gods before me. And you begin to see what relationships really matter when you go through difficult times. It can also strengthen your relationship with God like nothing else can. C.S. Lewis famously said uh, that God whispers to us in our prosperity, but he shouts to us in the adversity. You hear a whisper on a sunny day, but you hear a very loud, audible voice almost of God in the storm, he gets your attention in that moment. How many of y'all would say, I have never prayed like I prayed when I was going through a difficult time? Yeah. And you will never worship like you worship when you're going through a difficult time. If you've never been to a night of worship and you're going through a difficult time, cancel everything else and be here for that. It will be a completely different experience. Even if you're one of those people who just happens to show up 15 minutes late every Sunday, you know who you are, that's okay. I'll tell you this, though. Yeah, your laugh's revealing it. Uh, I'll tell you this, though. When you go through a difficult time and you begin to realize that God is all that you have, and more importantly, he's all that you really need, it will change how you worship. It, it just, it's a totally different experience. Another thing is, is suffering that you go through has a way to change you to make you more grace-filled like Jesus Christ, there's nothing more hypocritically pharisaical than a first-year seminary Bible student. Just telling you, remember a couple years ago, I got this scathing email uh, from somebody who's, it was a, somebody's child who, uh, they had come to church here, their child had never been to church here, and I get this scathing email from the visit, and then I read down and realize, and then it says something like, you know, and in my such-and-such such class, in my first year at Bible school, I'm like, oh, uh, okay, it makes, it makes all sense now. Like, you, go, you have this view of life when you're young, you know, that everything's going to work like the textbook, right? That, you know, you're, you're going you're gonna to get married, and you're going to have your two kids, and it's all going to work out. And you look at somebody else whose life's kind of a mess, and you're like, oh, well, if you made better choices, you wouldn't be in that situation. <laughs> By the time you get to 50, you look back, and you hear that same story, you're like, yeah, right? It, totally different perspective. And for some of you, you're still just too sheltered to have grace. You've been too sheltered by life to have the grace you need. I can promise you this. At some point, though, you're going to learn the lesson of grace. You're going to be in a situation where you desperately need it. And it will change how you view it. That's what Jesus says. He's there with, with the, the Pharisee, and this woman comes in. She's like pouring perfume all over his feet. And he looks at the guy and he's like, you know, the problem with you is you don't, you don't love God much. You don't have a lot of grace in your heart for other people because you just don't understand your own sinfulness and your own relationship with God. Her, she sees it, she knows it. Because of how much she's been forgiven, she's got a lot of grace to share to people and a lot of love to show. The more you've been beat up by life, the more understanding and compassionate you are towards those who've also gone down that same hard road. And then lastly, it says in here, in this passage, it says, you know, it is for, for discipline that you endure there's this, there's this uh, theme you see throughout scripture about those who endure. It, it comes up very heavily in the book of Revelation as well. And there's this question of, God wants to know the answer to this question, who really loves me? Who really loves me? My favorite movie of all time is a movie called Greedy. And I wish I could use a movie clip from there because it is the, the reason why it's my favorite movie is because it illustrates this point better than any movie I've ever seen. I can't show it because to show it gives away the essence of the movie. And if you don't know, I can use movies for educational purposes, which is what I do here on Sunday mornings, but I can't steal the essence of the movie, does that make sense? Like if I take away, like if I, if I show a whodunit and I tell you It, I've stolen, I've stolen the artwork and the, the monetary value of that movie by showing it to you. Greedy, it's got some language in it, but it's got Phil Hartman who's hilarious and Michael Douglas, or sorry, Kirk Douglas, and Michael J. Fox, and a couple others. It is the best movie to ever illustrate why we go through pain, sufferings, and trials. And I tear up every time I see it when I get to the end. Because it's this question that keeps coming out, I gotta know who really loves me. And it's this wealthy old man, and everybody wants his money, and he just wants to know, do any of my kids love me? Do any of them love me? Do any of my grandkids love me? That's who, I wanna, that's who I want to, to give my fortune to is the one who really loves me. And, and how do you find that out when you have all that much money? And so he puts these people through all kinds of horrible experiences with this one question of mine, who really loves me? And I saw that and I was like, that's exactly what God's been doing in my life. It's exactly what he does in every one of our lives. Because this life is about nothing more than a loving relationship And God wants to spend all eternity with you. But the question is, who really loves me? The only way you know that, and the only way that gets revealed is through trials. And that's why Peter says, you can rejoice because what happens when you go through and you endure it, you see that your salvation was legit. You see your relationship was legit. Uh, And in Hebrews he says, the reason why you're going through this is for the purpose of endurance. To show whether or not you really have a true and right relationship. So God is at work in the midst of your pain, suffering, and trials. And you may not know the big cosmic reason, but I can tell you very clearly the reason why you're going through it is so that those things might result and those things might happen that the harvest of righteousness and the genuineness of, genu- of, genu- of your faith might truly be revealed in your life. My hope is that you will lean into and receive and accept whatever God brings into your life, knowing he's with you no matter what. This life is not all there is. And that he's going to work all things for the good. We join with me to close in prayer. Father, the storms of life will come. When Jesus tells a parable, he, he talks about the foundations we build on, but he says there's one unique experience everybody has. We all share in the storms of life, the pain, the suffering, and the loss. The question is, how will we suffer suffer through it? How will we understand it? How will we respond to it? And what will our goal or aim be because of it? In the midst of a culture that has no idea why we're suffering and focuses on avoiding it, Father, may we see from your word there is a reason, whether we ever find that out or not, Father, one of the also the reasons for this is that because it draws draws us closer to you, makes us more like you, reorders our life and our priorities and reveals where we really are and who we really are before you. And Father, this is stuff we desperately need to know and get nailed down. If we're gonna have a loving relationship with you that we know that we truly have for all eternity. So Father, may we someday get to the point where we can look back over our life and thank you for the trials. And maybe even one day rejoice in the midst of them. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.